Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the History with Sai podcast. I hope that by now, most of you have been able to check out the recent program on the Sumerians. I honestly had a lot of fun making it, and I hope that you also enjoyed it. Unfortunately, due to time, I couldn't go over every topic that I would have liked to. But in the near future, I'll do my best to put out short programs like this one to go over a few things that I may have missed, or that I would have liked to have covered in more detail. One of these topics dealt with the Amorites, a people who were blamed in antiquity for bringing about the ultimate downfall of Sumerian civilization in the late 3rd millennium BC. So, let's start this program by taking a quick look at a relatively well-known passage from a Sumerian text dating approximately to the same time period. The Amorites, who know no grain. The Amorites, who know no house nor town. The boars of the mountains. The Amorite, who digs up truffles. Who does not bend his knees to cultivate the land. Who eats raw meat. Who has no house during his lifetime. Who is not buried after his death. These are the words of a text that rather poetically describes what most believe was the widespread Sumerian view of the people they called the Martu, who we today call the Amorites. The words of this and similar Sumerian texts from the 3rd millennium BC mention them with scorn. To the civilized, urban Sumerians, the Martu were uncouth, illiterate pastoralists. Leaving their homelands somewhere to the west of Sumer, they had been consistently migrating into the fertile lands of Mesopotamia, much to the dismay of its Sumerian and Akkadian inhabitants. In the 21st century BC, the part of Mesopotamia that today makes up most of southern and central Iraq was the domain of the great kings of what scholars call the Third Dynasty of Ur. Stretching from 2112 BC, when its first king, Urnamu, founded the dynasty, to 2004 BC, when its last king, Ibisin, was captured by Elamites, this time frame is commonly known as the Neo-Sumerian period. In past episodes on the Sumerians, we learned that the Neo-Sumerian period was a sort of Sumerian renaissance, and overall, a time of great prosperity and cultural achievement. I think that many scholars would agree that at the time, perhaps along with Egypt, this part of the world was arguably the most advanced and culturally sophisticated civilization on earth. So, given this, it's not hard to see why the average Sumerian would have had disdain for these simple, Semitic-speaking pastoralists who were infiltrating their civilized world. However, it's clear that Sumerian accounts of Amorites are extremely biased against them. What I'd like to do in this program is to explore who the Amorites really were and where they came from. The people that we today refer to as the Amorites are a bit of an enigma. Their language, which we conveniently call Amorite, as far as we know, was never written down. We just know that it was different than the other main languages of the day, such as Sumerian, Akkadian, and Hurrian. However, we can see the influence of the language and the infusion of Amorite words in many Akkadian language texts after 2000 BC. Beyond this, though, we know little about it, as no literature, religious texts, 
where even artifacts or objects with any sort of Amorite language have ever been found. Speaking of artifacts, these are also pretty much non-existent. For example, there aren't any pottery shards or textile patterns that scholars can identify as being distinctly Amorite. Due to these and other factors, their early history is pretty much unknown. Another thing is that scholars aren't even sure if the Amorites were even a people or nation. I'll explain. The term Amorite in the English language is derived from the word Emori, which is found in the Hebrew Bible. This is very similar to the Akkadian word Amuru, which in that language means both Amorite and was the name of an area in the Levant between the Orontes River and the Mediterranean Sea. The problem with the words Amuru and Martu is that they can have multiple meanings. Both of these respective Akkadian and Sumerian words for the Amorites were also used for the compass direction designating the West. So while Amuru or Martu could have been an actual ethnic group or those who came from a specific country, it could also simply have meant Westerner or people from the West. The earliest known document in which the term Martu appears comes from the ancient Sumerian city of Shurupak during the early dynastic period of Sumer. In this case, specifically between the years 2600 to 2500 BC. It's a simple accounting document that doesn't reveal much except that a man with a Sumerian name, Isubuag, received a salary from a farmer. He's described in the text simply as a Martu. This Martu man in question could have simply been a migrant worker from an area to the west, or someone from a specific ethnic group who was working in Shurupuk at the time. Also, from just how far to the west isn't known. Was he from, say, the area around the city of Mari, which was still west of Sumer, but not as far as, say, Ebla, which was several hundred kilometers further west? It's hard to tell from just one line in what's otherwise a pretty mundane accounting document. Another appearance of the word Martu, or something similar, appears in texts from the ancient city of Ebla, today in western Syria. Dating to within a century or two of the farmer's account from Shurupuk, these texts make several references to a geographic region called Martu, or Martum. Such documents indicate at least two things. One, that Martu was a place that had at least some political organization, and two, there was trade between Ebla and Martu. In one text, we learn that Martu has a leader whose name is Amuti. In fact, the text gives him the title of Lugal. Now, we've seen in other programs that this was a term that Sumerians themselves used for a king. And not just any king, literally meaning big man, a Lugal generally presided over other cities with their own ensis and ends, meaning governors and lords, respectively. Perhaps Amuti was given the title Lugal because he seems to have presided over Martu's council of elders. We have to be careful, though, not to read too much into the term Lugal. It may have simply been the best word that the Eblaites had to describe the leaders of various nations. In this case, what may have been no more than a simple tribal confederacy of pastoralists, and not an established state. Regardless of who they really were, 
The documents from Ebla indicate that the Lugal of the Martu, as well as the members of the council, each received three items of clothing, a cloak, a tunic, and a girdle. These may have actually been gifts from the king of Ebla, because another document speaks of an alliance between Ebla and Martu. Other texts from the Ebla archives tell of an armed conflict between the nearby city of Imar, one of Ebla's regional rivals, and Martu. In it, we're simply told that Martu was destroyed, and that, depending on the translation, their sheep were either killed or confiscated. It's quite possible that the people of Martu and Ebla were allies against the city of Imar. That last part is actually my opinion. It's not stated explicitly in any text that I've come across, but given the other information that we have, to me, it makes a lot of sense that a larger power such as Ebla would use simple pastoralists like herdsmen from Martu as proxies to cause trouble for their regional rival, in this case, Imar. A few hundred years later, around 2200 BC, the Akkadian king, Sharkalishari, the great-grandson of Sargon the Great, reports defeating a people known as the Martu at a place called Basar, an area believed to be the Jebel Bishri mountain range west of the Euphrates, perhaps a couple hundred kilometers northwest of the site of Palmyra. Some have proposed that this may have been the homeland of the Amorites. As we went over earlier, Martu was the Sumerian name for the Amorites. But what about the Akkadian word, Amuru? Where does that come from? One possibility, according to French Assyriologist Jean-Marie Durand, is that it may have been derived from the Akkadian word mur, or maru, meaning to be bitter, which may be a reference to the salty water of the Mediterranean Sea. For the people of ancient Mesopotamia in the 3rd millennium BC, these waters may have been as far west as they could have gone, hence the compass direction for west, amuru. However, in the 2nd millennium BC, the terms Amuru and Amurum appear in the archives of other Near Eastern kingdoms, such as those of Mari and Egypt. One letter from Mari associates a tribal confederation known as the Binu Yamina with three areas to the west, Yamhad, Katna, and Amurum. The text reads, While the land of Yamhad, the land of Katna, and the land of Amurum are the range of the Binu Yamina, and in each of those lands the Binu Yamina have their fill of barley and pasture their flocks. In a letter dated to around 1770 BC, during the reign of the last king of Mari, Zimri Lim, who himself was an Amorite, there is mention of Amuru figs delivered from the region of Yamhad, an area that at the time was also ruled by another extremely powerful Amorite dynasty. Perhaps the most well-documented references to a place called Amuru come from the 14th century BC letters of Ribhada, the ruler or governor of Byblos. These letters, part of the corpus we now call the Amarna letters, are addressed to his overlord, the Egyptian pharaoh. Byblos was and still is one of the busiest ports along the coast of the eastern Mediterranean, in what's today modern Lebanon. Amuru was a bit further to the north, and consisted of the coastal lands between the Mediterranean Sea and the Orontes River, what would today be around the border of northern Lebanon and western Syria. In these letters, 
Ribhada constantly complains about bands of marauders led by a sort of pirate king named Abdi Ashurta and later his son, Aziru. Though technically on the frontiers of the then Egyptian Empire, the pharaohs in reality had little control over the area, and eventually, Aziru abandoned Egypt and made an alliance with the rival Hittite Empire in addition to signing a separate treaty with the wealthy city-state of Ugarit. Let's get back to Mesopotamia. We know that Sumerian texts and literature describe the Martu, or the Amorites, as a great nuisance, so much so that the second king of the third dynasty of Ur, Shulgi, ordered the construction of a border wall in northern Mesopotamia from part of the Euphrates to the Tigris River in an attempt to keep them out. Ultimately, the wall didn't work, and the Amorites found ways to get through or simply around it. By the reign of the third dynasty of Ur's last king, Ibisin, much of his rapidly diminishing empire had now been infiltrated by various Amorite tribes. In a well-known exchange of letters between the last Neo-Sumerian ruler, Ibisin, and one of his generals, Ishbiera, the latter tells the king of how the Amorites are everywhere and that they're responsible for the disruption in the transportation of grain to the capital city of Ur. Ishbiera writes, Reports that hostile Amorites had entered the country were heard, and all the grain was brought to Isin. Now the Amorites in their entirety have entered the heart of the country and have taken the great fortresses one by one. Ishbiera then requests that he be put in charge of both Isin and the holy city of Nippur, which along with nearby Pizrush Dagan, were great food and supply storehouses. Ibisin, reluctantly, agrees, but tells him to hurry and send the desperately needed grain to Ur. Whether or not the grain ever made it there is unknown, but a few years later, Ishbiera declared his independence from Ibisin and founded his own dynasty based in the city of Isin. A little over a decade later, the Neo-Sumerian Empire itself died when the Elamite king Kindatu captured and plundered the city of Ur in 2004 BC, taking not just grain and gold, but also Ibisin back with him to Elam. Within a century of the fall of Ur, new Amorite dynasties had been firmly established in the cities of Kish, Larsa, Sippar, Uruk, and Babylon. A lot of what we know about the Amorites and their presence in Mesopotamia after 2000 BC comes from Akkadian language texts that bear what are clearly Semitic names and words, but that at the time were foreign or unfamiliar to the region of central and southern Mesopotamia. What I mean by this is that the Amorites brought with them a whole new vocabulary of new words as well as social customs that were different than those of the already established Sumerian and Akkadian populations. At the same time, they also assimilated themselves into the Sumero-Akkadian culture of their new homelands by adopting the Akkadian language, which being a fellow Semitic tongue had many similarities with their own. One might wonder as to how Amorites were able to rise to positions of power in Mesopotamia so quickly after the fall of the Neo-Sumerian Empire. After all, they were simple pastoralists who were not accustomed to urban life and farming, let alone running a state. 
What happened is that as the authority of the centralized state based in Ur began to break down, men from Amorite tribes were hired as mercenaries by many local NCs for both their personal security as well as that of their respective cities. As their independence from Ur grew and turf wars between cities began, they relied on these Amorite mercenaries even more. It's partially through their close contacts with the ruling establishments of these cities, their rulers and military officers, that various groups of Amorites learned a lot with regard to running a small state. However, being a tribal society, Amorite loyalty was more with their respective clans than the local NCs they served. And so, within a short period of time, they began to use their new positions for the benefit of their respective Amorite chieftains, who in the local language were called Rabian Amurum. It's these men who would go on to become the real power brokers in Mesopotamia. One example comes from the city of Eshnuna, the ruins of which today are in the Diyala River Valley, northwest of the Iraqi capital of Baghdad. Soon after the fall of the third dynasty of Ur, Eshnuna's ruler, Bilalama, married the daughter of Abdael, an Amorite chieftain, or the Rabian Amurum, of his tribe. Abdael's son, Ushashum, was also married to one of Bilalama's cousins. These were obviously politically motivated marriages that in theory benefited both sides. On the one hand, Bilalama could rely on Abdael's protection against his enemies. In return, the Amorite chieftain not only received some sort of payment for the services of his men, but also raised his status by now being closely affiliated with one of the local, and often noble houses, of Mesopotamia. This also allowed him to request special favors from the local NC. In a letter that was uncovered in the archives of Eshnuna, Ushashum requests special gifts from Bilalama for the simple purpose of increasing his status amongst the other Amorites who would soon be gathering to attend the funeral of his father, Abdael. The letter reads, I am your brother, your flesh and blood am I. A stranger might be hostile, but I remain at your beck and call. You must therefore listen to me, and thus honor me in the eyes of the Amorites. Send me without delay the expected gifts for Abdael, everything that was held back. You know how much. One gold cup, three silver cups, one best quality garment, various bronze cups, one copper kettle. Envoys from the whole country are coming here for the funeral of Abdael, and all the Amorites are gathering. Whatever you intend to send for the funeral of Abdael, your father, send separately from the gifts you send me. And, because you are my brother, send me without delay a young servant from Mashkan Sharum. Even if he is worth ten minas of silver, send him. Make me famous. Eventually, Amorites such as Ushashim must have realized that real prestige came not from protecting other kingdoms, but having one of his own. It wasn't long before the Amorites took over the cities that they'd been initially hired to protect, with many of them giving up their pastoralist ways and adopting the settled lifestyle of city dwellers and farmers. By 1800 BC, there were several Amorite kingdoms throughout all parts of Mesopotamia. 
Among the most well-known were those of Yamhad, Mari, the Kingdom of Upper Mesopotamia, Eshnuna, Larsa, and perhaps the most famous of them all, Babylon. I've actually talked a bit about all of these kingdoms in other programs, but I'll also revisit them in the near future. For now, I hope that you have a better idea of who the Amorites were and where they may have come from. Let me know what you think in the comments. As always, thanks so much for stopping by, I really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank GrandKick69, Yap de Graf, Pasta Frola, Michael Lewis, Tobias Winder, TV, Cher Cam, Farhad Kama, Danny Van Hecke, Danielle Allen, and all of the channel's patrons on Patreon for helping to support this and all future content. Check out the benefits to being a Patreon member, and if you'd like to join, feel free to click the link in the video description. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as continue to listen to special audio programs on the History with Sai podcast. Thanks again, and stay safe.